It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the first Love Tennis podcast of 2022. I'm still getting used to saying that. I don't know how anyone else is feeling, but... I still keep calling it 2021, including in embarrassing things on Twitter and in the newspaper. But uh, that's what sub-editors are for. I am, of course, always, as always, joined by George Belshaw. George, have you recovered from your New Year's Eve hangover yet? I have. I, the, the thing that's causing me the most problems at the minute is actually I, I did some weights and now I can't lift my arms up or straighten them out um, <laughs> because it's been a long gap since uh, last doing any. So I'm in quite a lot of upper body pain at the minute. Um, as usual I mean by your standard of injuries that's pretty low so I think we'll just about take it yeah well Uh, my lower half is so so ruined at the minute with my knee injury that I'm now trying to bring the uh, upper body on an even keel if you like oh very good and the third man in the ring as always is uh, tennis coach Calvin Betton Calvin how are you any any injuries to keep us up to date with um, no, unsurprisingly, but I start playing football again on Wednesday after a break, so sure there will be on Thursday. <laughs> the calf knows no bounds, I'm sure. Um, yeah. We've got loads to get on with uh, other than the injuries in the podcast. Incidentally, if anyone cares, my, my hamstring injury is slowly healing. Um, we're, we're on the way back. We started running again, but um, only very slowly. Uh, we've got loads to get through today. Of course, tennis is back in a big way. We've had matches pretty much since the bells went in fact before in the uk thanks to time zones which as usual i'm going to be struggling with for the next six weeks Uh, the atp cup is underway we've got matches going on in adelaide in melbourne in sydney all over australia where i'm told it's raining so why are we playing out there anyway we could be playing them in loughborough uh, but that's neither here nor there Uh, we'll also do some more predictions for both british players and our year end number ones Uh, well and we'll also be running through some, um, well, specialist knowledge about string tension. Calvin's going to break down string tension and hopefully make it a bit clearer for you all. Uh, But there is only one place to start, really. This is a British tennis podcast, as you well know. Uh, And we beat the Germans in a a vengeful win in the ATP Cup. Uh, Anyone who was listening to us about a month ago will know that we're all heartbroken when we knocked out the Davis Cup 
by the Germans in a, a pretty tense doubles match out in Austria. Uh, this was sweet, sweet revenge for Great Britain, who, well, not quite romped, but uh, two very, very convincing victories, both involving Dan Evans, which, George, I think probably when you wrote down the teams here, well, for a start, none of us were putting Dan in the doubles. Uh, and secondly, I don't think anyone saw him beating Lan Yen- Jan Leonard Struff 6-1, 6-2. No, absolutely not. Um, I think given the kind of short off-season this year, I almost have kind of disregarded uh, that kind of normal, you're like, oh, it does, the form at the end of the season doesn't count really for the next season because it feels like there's a bit of a longer break and, you know, a lot changes, good chance to reset. I've almost kind of just abandoned that because it feels like the off-season lasts about 10 days. Um, but Dan seems to have ignored that hypothesis and reset his year nicely straight away. Um, maybe Jan Leonard had a few too many Christmas cakes. I was going to say Christmas cakes. I don't Christmas really know puddings. what, I mean, too many glue vine. <laughs> I don't know what the Germans eat at Christmas, but I'm assuming it's all boozy and fruity. Yeah, glue vine's a good one mm. for that. Um, but yeah, If you like, I can edit me out and just have you saying it and it'll sound like you're very clever. Or as Sorry. is more likely, people are still hearing me talking and therefore I'm just stitching you up. Um, but yeah uh, again we didn't really think he'd play the doubles we were all very surprised to see Joe out there's obviously been a little bit of illness in the camp Um, hopefully nothing too serious Uh, but Dan steps up really well got the win and yeah you'd expect Norrie to lose to Zverev that happened Mm. so I I think it should be you know there's a few stats that stand out from that Evan Struth match I mean Dan didn't face a single break point he forced 11 on the Struth serve, which anyone who watched the Davis Cup match in Austria, I mean, Struth served like a dream. Like, I mean, he was just smashing the ball out of, out of the park. Um, and of course, he won the number one match there. So, um, yeah, hugely surprising to see such a big turnaround there. Um, I mean, that we don't know what's going on necessarily with Jan Leonard. Um, you know, as you say, George, there has been a bit of a reset over Christmas, however short. I thought it was interesting. And Calvin, you maybe I'll shed some light on this, but... Dan said in post-match that he hadn't done an off-season. He'd, he'd had a little bit of a holiday and then just gone back to training, no real pre-season work, and that actually he would be treating post-Australian Open as his off-season, which I think is something Cam Norrie's talked about before, hasn't he? Yeah, I think it depends on how your year is. Tennis, it's a weird one with tennis players, what they call off-season, because it can just be like no different from a little break in the season where you'll take because it's probably no longer than three to four weeks, definitely no longer than four weeks that you're going to get. Season finishes in uh, November, kind of halfway through November. Then most players will take kind of a seven to 10 day holiday. By the time you got back from that, you, you're in, you're into December and you got to set off for Australia. Mm. Um, usually most players leave for Australia on boxing day or the day after. So it's not like a football preseason per se, but, um, or or some other sports, athletics and that kind of thing where you're building up to it. It's more really that they'll take a holiday and then maybe do a bit of work on some things they want to do and build up some fitness because you don't get a chance to do that in the season, really. Mm. So, yeah, maybe Dan just didn't get the full four weeks that he wanted. So you can do that after the Aussie, I guess, can't you? Because there's nothing really then until the American hard courts that you have to play. Mm. Um, George, you were going to say? Just was asking, is an off season as important to a guy like Dan this late stage in his career? Is it much more beneficial to kind of younger players? Do you think, in in many ways, 
in terms of building your body, etc. I know you get annoyed when we talk about just physical, but I just wonder in terms of evaluating, you know, Dan surely a player who knows what he's got to do at tour level now. He's been around the block a lot. What What's the advantage or disadvantage? Or kind of depends. It's not really on a particular player. It kind of depends on where the player's at. Like if they've got some areas of their game that they, they're not comfortable with and they want to work on, then it's nice to get a sort of three, four week period where you can get into that, into the nitty gritty. But if you're pretty comfortable with your game, then it's really just a physical thing. It's a fitness thing, really. There's nothing, you know, and I'd say Dan's probably out there. I can't imagine there's going to be too many changes, if any changes at all, to his game. So I think it will be just building up a little bit of fitness um, in that period. Hmm. I mean, he's someone who has previously been criticised for not being fit enough. I, I think that's probably less true now, especially in, say, the last year or so. I feel like, and Calvin, I know you've said this before and I don't want to revisit it for too long, but I do feel like players say a lot, you know, I want to get fitter. Is it just a sort of, because if you stop trying to get fitter, you get less fit, if that makes any sense. You go backwards if you're not constantly thinking about, you know, somehow getting fitter. Obviously, there's some players who could do with being fitter, but I think a lot of players, they kind of use it as something because they can. it makes them feel like they're working. It makes them feel like they're progressing on something. If, if you start, if you go in the gym and start doing more fitness training, doing more running, more, more time on the walk bike, more weights, then you will get fitter, you will get stronger. That's not necessarily the case if you go and do some work on core and you start working on some technical elements. You can work on something for three or four weeks and it still be no better at the end of it because that's that's the nature of soft skills and uh, at the elite level of sport. Whereas they know that if they go in the gym for three weeks, they will come out of it in better physical condition. What do you mean when you say soft skills, sorry, to people who don't necessarily... Just, just open skills, just things like, you know, if you want to work on maybe being better at the net, on better on low volleys or something on the serve, something that's not linear in, in terms of like where, imagine weightlifting is. If you if yeah. you lift weights for, for three weeks, you will be lifting more weights by the end of the three weeks. You will be lifting heavier. There's no guarantee. That's just the nature of physiology. There's no guarantee that if you do three weeks work on a technical element of your game, that it will be better at the end of it. That that's, Mm. that's basically what a soft skill is. Mm. I I would usually kind of sit here at this stage of the season or in this podcast of the season and say, always interesting to see who comes out of the blocks quickest. But I genuinely do think as as you say, Calvin and and from what players have been saying that a lot of players haven't done a proper off season. Certainly the ones who've, um, been playing in the Davis Cup. Uh, nevertheless, the ATP Cup, and I, I don't, someone called it an exhibition tournament. I don't really look at it as that from the way it's played from, I mean, George, you may think differently, but I think the way the players approach it, it's a relatively serious tour. I mean, anyone who saw Alex de Manure, um playing today for Australia and beating Matteo Berrettini and then Piers and Saville winning their doubles match, you know, in front of a home crowd, it mattered to them, didn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's good prize money. Um, you get points for it. I definitely don't think it's a kind of joke event. I think, am I right in saying, I think it's 750 points you can get as a max if you play the right level of opponents. Yeah, um, it's it's very, very rank. complicated. It's points per win, depending on the rank of your Their opponent. Ranking. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it definitely isn't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying anyone would say the Davis Cup is an exhibition, 
because that has got a long steep. I guess people think of the Hotman Cup, right? Which used to yeah, happen in Perth. Yeah, I mean, but for players, the Hotman Cup is a good, fun way to warm up into the season. But there's not much to it in terms of we couldn't list who won it every year, really. I'm sure some people could before you come back at me on that. But uh, <laughs> most main people wouldn't be running in around and listing Hotman Cup winners. And maybe they wouldn't do that for the ATP Cup. But the fact of the matter is there's more points available for winning the ATP Cup for most players than winning a 500 if you're going to go that far. And for a lot of players in this, that they wouldn't necessarily be winning 1,000s or slams. So it's a good opportunity for points that are tough to come by in the season. So I think it's something that players will take very seriously. Uh, and it's certainly the case for Uga Umber, who I think probably produced a standout result of the first two days of the tournament. He beat... Daniil Medvedev, uh, France nevertheless lost, um, which feels like about the most French thing you can do, really, to pick up a win against the number one player and still find a way to lose the tie. That's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, he beat him 6-7, He was three love down and a set down in the second set and then uh, produced a pretty sizable comeback. Calvin, I know, I think we all think pretty highly of Hugo Umber in terms of his long-term um, ambitions, Beating Medvedev, you know, on a hard court, uh, this close to a Grand Slam in what is a competitive match. Let's face it; it's a team event. Medvedev really cares about playing for Russia. It's a big deal, isn't it? Um, I think what's most relevant is that he won it in a close match because Sumber in recent times, in the last couple of years, has maybe the last year. I don't know when, when was it that he played um, Kyrgios the first time. Was it last year's Australian Open? It was last year, um, yeah. And then he yeah. played in Wimbledon as well. Yeah, and then in two two close matches, and he really, for want of a better word, he bottled it in both of those matches. Um, so he's got a bit of a reputation in in close matches against top players. He doesn't get the job done, mm-hmm. but so I think that's most relevant. That it's the, definitely the highest ranked player he's beaten um, so far. He's a he's a wonderful talent. Um, really good all court game, big weapons, moves well. Um, I definitely think he could step up into the top 10, but kind of stagnated a bit in 2021. Didn't really progress at all from where I expected him to be, but hopefully he steps up now. But I, I wouldn't read too much into it from Medvedev's point of view. He tends to have these these sort of tournaments every now and then where his head goes. But um, yeah, for Umber, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good result. I saw uh, two really interesting stats about this match. Um, afterwards, well, not specifically about the match, but two as part of the fallout of the match, shall we say? Um, I'm trying to. Do you want the Medvedev or the Humber stat? Uh, why don't you start with the Humber stat and I'll have the Medvedev stat for dessert? Okay, Humber stat is apparently, I've not checked this out, but I saw this tweet. <laughs> oh, great. So it's not even a confirmed stat. I was, I was trying to just look now, but tennis abstract's failing me, I'm afraid. But okay, apparently. Humber has won six of his last eight matches against ACP top 10 players. Uh, that's a, a remarkable stat and very easily fact-checked. But you say tennis yeah, abstract has let it working. I bet, I bet he played like, that's going to be against people like um, Rubio. Uh, that's what I wanted to see, like Nurkat probably and people yeah. like that. Keeping in, yeah. Anyway, that, that's quite a good stat though for Humber in terms of, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know what? I mean, that it's not six. Oh, no, it is six because, yeah, including Medvedev. Yeah, absolutely. Six of his last eight. He's beaten Medvedev twice because he he beat Medvedev Medvedev on clay in Hamburg. 
he beat Tsitsipas in Paris. He beat Zverev at Halle. He beat Rublev at Halle, and he beat Tsitsipas at the Olympics. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, okay, Medvedev on clay two, nearly two years ago, you might not say is such a big deal, but it's still reasonable. Um, Zverev on grass, I suppose you think that's probably the best surface to play Zverev on. But, you know, I mean, and they're, and they're all close matches, crucially, almost all in three sets. So, I don't know, maybe maybe he's got, got Le Bottle back. That's, that's all I can potentially say. Um, what's your Medvedev stat? And, and do I yeah. need to look it up for you to check it? I hope not. Um, <laughs> oh, God. This, this one, I'll, I'll give... I think I've got this from Matthew Willis earlier, so I'll give him some credit. He uh, tracked Alvin down... definitely won't have seen it before then. <laughs> he tracked down Medvedev's um, winning records against players by their nationality. Oh, yes. And the worst one considerably... So it's, it's pretty high on most of them, so I'll read you a couple... Uh, against American players, 91% win rate. We'd probably expect that, given this isn't a, great, a particularly vintage set of Americans. Against Spanish, 61%, which is all right, considering the guy who's playing most regularly is Nadal. Um, Germans, 68%. Again, Zverev's not easy. British, 71%. Yeah. Has he lost to Murray a couple of times? Yeah, he's anyway. lost to Murray a couple of times. Yeah. Canadian, 75%. I, so you're going through the whole list, like all UN never recognised Not all of them. Not all of them, but keep, keep the percentage baselines in mind, roughly. Australian, 86%. Argentinian, Get to the punchline, George. Honestly. <laughs> French players, 43%. That is he remarkable. Has lost 20 losses to French players. 20? I thought it would be a sample size. Wins. That's wild. I mean, I know he's 0-2 against Umber, but like, also, with the greatest of respect to the French, there aren't very many good French players. Like, does he just serially lose to Monfils or something? Uh, who is he playing against, though? It's, it's, I mean, the, a, a lot of these earlier on in his career, and I'm trying to think wow. of matches against French players, and I, I can't remember many. I remember 1-1 against Gilles. Monfils. He lost to Gilles Simon at Queens. I remember that one vividly because it was one of the longest matches I've ever watched. Just like, not in terms of length, but in terms of every point, just felt like it was two blokes. That, you know, Simon kind of just pats it back in, doesn't he, all day long? Gilles Simon has a three and zero record against him. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you can see why it happens in general. The French, they they're, they're skillful players. That the way that they're brought up to play. They're going to sort of mix it around. They're not going to go really toe-to-toe from the baseline with him. They're going to mix it with some slices, some angles, some volleys, and they are the type of player that bother Medvedev the most. Um, admittedly, they're they're not as good players as he is, but it's easy to remember to forget as well that Medvedev, because he's so good now, he really only came to the fore in the summer of 2020, uh, 2019. Hmm. Um and he was around for a for a, a good while before that. He was probably around for a good two or three years before that as a kind of top one hundred player. Um, so he would have played more often. He would have played those guys who were ranked, who at the time were ranked one hundred to kind of twenty five in the world. He'd have played a lot of matches against them. And there are a lot of French players in that demographic of players. They they tend to be the best in the world outside of maybe America and Spain, of getting guys top 100 that don't break into the top 20. Mm. Um, just on Gilles Simon, because I saw this on Twitter, and it, it 
it really made me laugh. Um, he was registered for qualifying for a challenger in Traralgon, which I'm struggling to say. Um, but yeah, he was he was in qualifying for a challenger, which I can't really get my head around. Um, but he then got a, a wild card into main draw, and they like put in a couple of alternates into qualifying. But I I, I don't know. It was just, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why he's playing qualifiers for challengers, but um, he was. Anyway, George, you want to say something more interesting? I was, I was going to say, I mean, I understand that like, Calvin's right in terms of like style. You can see why the French would hurt Medvedev. But in terms of like the sheer monotony of beating Medvedev and the sort of players who are mentally right to do that, you'd imagine the French are pretty low down in that category. You but know, I think like, it's exactly what Calvin says. I think you forget that like, this beast that Medvedev is now is a relatively young beast. And for a reasonable amount of time, he wasn't someone who was that, you know, wasn't the same. Beating Daniil yeah, Medvedev yeah. in, I don't know, 2018, almost certainly wasn't the same. He lost to Marcus Willis at Wimbledon. And I think, I think wow. like, he's on Marcus Willis's run, he beat Medvedev in the, in the qualifying. So, you know, and the guy was around for a while. Wow. That's wild. That's one of his two losses. So for Brits, it's five wins, two losses at tour level. And so. the other one, presumably, being Murray. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Calvin makes Calvin's absolutely right. I can't, I can't, I can't go beyond that. Um, and I don't like it. But Good analysis. <laughs> what's, what's what's his? Ad- I mean, it's quite a boring subject anyway. Probably losing listeners just talking about Medvedev's record <laughs> against certain nationalities. But I wonder what his, <laughs> what his record is against French players. Like in the last two years, like yeah. I, I, I bet it's significantly more than forty-one percent. You'd think so. Wouldn't if, you? if I could get tennis abstract working, I could let you know. But uh, you can't. Uh, you can't sort on tennis abstract by nationality of opponent. Believe me, I've tried. Um, really? Yeah, it's really frustrating, isn't it? What? What do you? I mean, there, there's nothing more to say about that. Let's move on. As you say, as Calvin says, we're losing listeners by the second. Um, uh, no more other particularly significant ATP Cup results to comment upon, other than, as I mentioned, uh, Australia upsetting Italy. Uh, Alex de Manure beating Matteo Berrettini. Um, I think it'll be really interesting uh, to see this year whether you know Matteo Berrettini of 2021 was a kind of high point and a, a random spike in his career, or you know whether he is the real deal. Um, I would suggest that the match he's playing on Tuesday against Ugo Umber might might be quite an interesting um, little uh, kind of gut check for him. Um, plenty of other decent matchups. Great Britain are playing again on Tuesday uh, up against Canada. Um, a few injury concerns already floating around. Denis Shapovalov didn't play singles against John Isner earlier in the week. Um, Stefano Tsitsipas didn't play singles, but then did play doubles, having like iced his elbow all afternoon which I thought was a slightly odd um, series of events. He's now down to play singles and doubles, um, potentially before you've even uh, before you've even heard this podcast. So um, we await with interest uh, to see exactly what is going on with him. Um, talking of, oh, George, you look like you're about to say something, or, or are you just... You say, are we, uh, are we... Who are we picking to, uh, to win the ATP Cup? Russia? Spain? Continue it. I mean, I quite even Spain without Nadal, they absolutely battered Chile, which I know is not the biggest team in the world. But I just, I suppose the problem with Spain is they haven't got a doubles partnership. And in best of three ties, you probably need a doubles. I think Australia are probably not a bad bet. You know, if 
if Dimino is going to play the tournament of his life, Piers and Savile aren't going to lose many doubles matches. I don't know. No Croatia to get behind because they've got the best doubles pairing. Who are you going for, George? Probably Russia again. <laughs> Just because they win everything. It's hard to no, bet against. They'll get through. Okay. They've not, not got their best team. They got Medvedev ones. Like Safulin was the other guy today, wasn't he? Yeah, and he won. Not like... I mean, he got them out of a hole. He beat Rindeknech. Yeah, um, but if it's that, I don't think they'll be beating... If their doubles team is Safulin and Medvedev and Safulin's the second singles player, I'd fancy... Some of the teams will have too much for them on that. Um, I mean, it's the thing is that it should come down to your second singles player, right? Like, because your doubles is a bit of a coin flip. And if your number one wins, obviously your number two can go out and win the tie. And the team with the best number two player is Italy. But Berrettini's just lost to Dimonur, so it kind of puts a cat among the pigeons. I mean, Britain, Britain have the fifth highest ranked number two player. But again... You can't rely on Cam Norrie to win matchups against, like, you know, I think there are six top 10 players at the ATP Cup. So you're going to need Cam Norrie to win, you know, against a top 10 player, which, you know, he's had a great 12 months and everything, but his record against top 10 players is not very good. Um, Canada, I think Canada that... if, got, if Canada get Shapovalov and uh, Felix playing, in theory, you'd think they're good. But again, we come back to it that neither of those two guys have won anything big. So you wonder if it comes down to it, and if we're saying that it that it is a relatively important tournament now, mm. whether I'd trust them to win a final against somebody like Russia or Italy, I don't know if I would. Now we got some news from Emma Raducanu's camp this week. Uh, if you're uh, in the know, you will have got it at about four in the morning UK time, which is not the kind of WhatsApp I want to be waking up to uh, to discover that Emma Raducanu had withdrawn from her first tournament of uh, the season in Australia. Um, she flew out to Australia on the 29th, uh, has been hitting for a couple of days, but decided she wasn't ready to compete uh, in the tournament. She's going to start her season instead in Adelaide next week. Um, it weakens the draw a little for uh, the Melbourne tournament, but that doesn't mean there aren't some interesting matchups out there. Um, George, I suppose it, it, there's not a lot to read into here. I mean, I was quite surprised that she was planning on potentially playing a competitive match on the 3rd of January, having been in Australia for only four days. I mean, it's just, you know, she, it means she's only going to have one tournament before the Australian Open, but I can't imagine that makes a huge amount of difference. No, um, bearing in mind she only had about three professional tournaments before winning the US Open. <laughs> it really matters uh, at all, really. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we spoke a bit about this before and how big an impact COVID will have on this group of players who've kind of got it in Mubadala and, you know, there may be other players who've also tested positive during the Christmas period that we don't know about that may kind of come out of the woodwork. Who knows? But, um, yeah, I, I don't really see it being a massive problem. She obviously want to get relatively sharp, but the season also finished so late that I almost don't even see match fitness being that much of an issue or match sharpness, to be honest. Um, mm. Well, she hasn't played a huge number of matches because she keeps losing. So you could argue that actually yeah. she's really short of match sharpness. Um, and she's going to go to uh, Adelaide next week for the second tournament there, which I think is a, a 500 rather than a 250. And it's an absolutely stacked draw. Um, she, it's a shortened tournament. There's only 30 people in 30 players in the main draw. 
there's only eight seeds. She's not going to be seeded by a long shot because I think she's about the 15th ranked player in the draw. So it's not going to be easy. There's no guarantee of her winning more than one or two matches. Calvin, you, you always talk about how important match sharpness is and how you can't really replicate match fitness. I mean, if you had a toss-up between playing four matches and therefore only having a day, one day off before a slam or playing one match, losing, and then having a full five days of rest and training before a slam, which would you prefer? Um, I think it depends on what's come before as well. Um, you don't want a situation like Dan Evans had last year where he won and then had to play the next day. Mm. Um, but I think at this early stage of the season, there's no problem with having um, some matches the week before because you're going to get a day off in the slams anyway. But um, yeah, I'd always go for for match being match match tight if I'm mm. um, Which obviously she won't have. George, you want to say something? I guess, uh, on next week's one, I mean, a tournament that close to a slam as well. I, I almost wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily worry too much about the strength of the field because if a lot of those players do well this week, they'll pull out, or they you know they might not be so invested. So it's always a bit of a tough. Tough on trying to necessarily get your head around. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily read too much into a strength of a draw one week before a slam because players' priorities change quite quickly if they've done well the week before. I'd say the one thing I'd say on that though is that it depends on the, each individual player. Again, you get some players who I personally always like players to be match tight, and most players want that. But you just get some players who it's not so relevant for them, and and they can just win without being matched, without playing any matches. I mean, Nadal comes back, well, not anymore, but he used to come back from six-month-long layoffs and win slams with his first tournament. Mm. Um, and to be fair to Raducanu, I think throughout her career, she's kind of done that. Even when she's gone on, like, sort of trips to futures, she'd go and win the first of the trip, which usually you use that as a bit of a warm-up tournament. So, mm. she, like we say, she didn't have loads of matches going into the US Open and ended up winning it. I think we've kind of said this before with her as well. I mean, it's really difficult for us to gauge what's going to be good for her, what's not going to be good for her, and what has actually impacted anything. You know, I think I genuinely don't know what I'm setting as an expectation for Maradikanu during the Australian Open swing. I mean, I honestly, I think like fourth round would be a really good slam still mm. for her. Really, very, very solid result. Um, but she could just as easily win it, just as easily lose it the uh, first round. And I'm not sure that necessarily says anything about the preparation kind of coming up because it's just such a weird result last year that, I don't know, it's too almost too early to read anything in until you've seen someone play at least one full year on the tour. And even then, can't read that much into it in many ways. No. I'm not sure she will know. No, exactly. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I hear a lot from some of the more partisan fan groups when it comes to Raducanu, you know, why are you talking about her? Like there shouldn't be any expectations on her. It's her first year as a pro. And I completely agree with that. But we also know that people desperately want to talk about Emma Raducanu. They want to hear about Emma Raducanu. And like, we know that she pushes the needle. Yeah. The reason I want to talk about her as much as possible is I want to push up her Instagram following so I can beat <laughs> Calvin. I haven't checked that for a while. Have a quick uh, Calvin's now. not worried about 2. it. 2.1. That's not right. up, only, 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 only what 97 to go, is it? No, 13 million. Is 13 the best million I mean, another 11 million for her to, um, it's all right. 
I actually disagree with the stuff about how we shouldn't be putting pressure on her. You, you don't get to win a slam and then not have pressure put on you. Once you do that, then the pressure gets put on and it's a privilege. You're expected to win matches because you're really good. Mm. And I don't think there's any reason why that shouldn't be the case. You know, it's, it's like in women's tennis, she's not exceptionally young. When we think that, like, you know, and I'm not comparing her with Monica Sellers. Monica Sellers had won eight Grand Slams when she was still a teenager. Mm. There's there's other players who've done that. Steffi Graf won as a teenager. Sanchez Vicario won as a teenager. You know, it had, Ma, Ma, uh, Martina Hingis won as a teenager. You, I'm sorry, but just because she's British, you don't get to win the US Open and then get away with saying, and that, then think it's all right to lose second round of slams for the next two years. Hmm. I, I'd expect, I, 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 I don't think fourth round is a good slam for her. You know, it's like, I, I'd expect, when, maybe it is, fourth or quarters, I'd go fair enough. But I don't think it's credit to her if she makes the fourth round. She's won the last slam. Yeah, and you're also going to look at who she plays in that. If she makes yeah. fourth round, she's going to have played at most one seeded player, maybe two. Um, yeah. George? I, I, my, my only caveat to that, and I suppose maybe this is just, me filtering down with the state of the women's game at the minute, but there's only one player who made fourth round of every slam last year, and that was Fionte. So no mm. one's doing it. I mean, yeah. like, if we're going to be consistent to everyone, and, and, and to be fair, we, I think we are consistent to everyone. You know, we will, I was going to say slag off, that's probably a bit strong, but, you know, we will criticise players in the women's game for not going far all the time, but it, it is also worth caveating that... I don't that. think it matters who won the last Grand Slam. We would be sitting here saying they should be winning three or four matches at the Australian Open. Like, I, I think if if Calvin had fixed his calf and gone and won the US Open, having come through qualifying, we would be sitting here saying, now, nah, come on, mate, if you don't make the second week, that's a failure. Like, pressure's a privilege, you'd say it yourself. We'd also say, is she better than 50, 60 in the world, maybe, right now? I'm not, I'm not you know somewhere between 20 and 60 and we're not really sure where she is so fourth round for me would be kind of par for the course i think if we're saying that though and i'm i'm not disagreeing but if we're saying that then we're saying that her winning it was a bit of a fluke which well, i also I, think is sorry I'm saying, I'm saying we don't know i mean that that's I, i'm not saying it's a fluke but it wouldn't surprise me if it was like just she's brilliant obviously don't be wrong you can tell she's a talented player but it was a bit of a perfect storm as well I think Calvin is saying, if we say Emma Raducanu, no pressure on her, if she loses first round, so what? By extension, you're saying, but, 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 you know, just let me um, reductio ad absurdum. Uh, By extension, we're saying, well, she fluked the US Open then. If we don't expect her to do well at the Australian Open, then it says something about what we think about the US Open. And given that we all think the US Open was, yes, an overachievement, but it wasn't a fluke, then we have to expect her to go and do something in the Australian. I mean, she's made the fourth round of the last two slams. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, don't forget Wimbledon. Like, let's just say, though, she could play Victoria Azarenka third round. That's the sort of level of player she could play. I wouldn't back her to beat Azarenka on a hardcore right now, necessarily. No, no, me neither. You know, that's a really, really tough match. So again, you know, there is also that level of, um, you know, it's easy to sit here now and say fourth round should be part of the course, but if you meet Azarenka third round, she loses in three. It's not necessarily a, a shock result in many ways. It is the thing with going down that route, though, is that when two and a half years ago, when Bianca Andrescu won the US Open, 
we weren't sort of saying, well, you know, if she makes the fourth round of the next one, that'd be a really good slam for her and we shouldn't expect anything. We weren't saying that. And here we are now, like we're two and a half years on. And we're saying last week that maybe she's done as an elite competitor in women's tennis. So you don't have, it's, it seems like you've got a win. You generally have a window in tennis. You don't get many players who win a slam when they're 18, don't do anything for the next four years and then come back at 22 and start dominating the game. My caveat with Andrescu would be that her winning a slam had come on the back of six months of really good form at top WTA tour level. She'd won kind of 1,000 level. There was the proof that she could win titles at that level consistently. You know, what we've seen from Raducanu is one amazing it's, it's longer than a fortnight, isn't it? Because she came through qualifying. How long mm, was it? Three weeks. Two and a half weeks, three weeks. But we've not seen a serial title winner, which Andrescu was kind of threatening to be. Osaka was when she won her first slam. You know, I, I still think, I, I think she will be. Don't get me wrong. I do think Raducanu, I'm not saying anything on her pressure. I'm just saying at this stage of her career, that, that US Open result was really the outlier. Wimbledon was great and a surprise and the fourth round was a good result, but every other tournament has not been, <laughs> has not been great. Has it really? I mean, I think that, I think I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but I think this is a thing that really annoys me about British, I guess British tennis fans and, but also British sport in general, that we're obsessed with this idea of not putting pressure on people. Hmm. And I don't know no. if it feels this pressure, like every single elite level athlete that I've met in my life it doesn't bother them they don't talk about pressure being a problem for them I, if I had a player now all day long I'd rather my player be expected to win the tournament than be expected to lose in the first or second round mm. and I think most players would be more comfortable with that and it's funny isn't it because I feel like it's really switched I feel like in Britain maybe 15 years ago we kind of almost relished the failure of British sports people, you know, pre Andy Murray, pre 2012 Olympic cycle and all the funding went into that. Go back even further, go back to the nineties when we really were rubbish at everything. And the England football team never won anything. And the rugby team were okay. The rugby team in the early nineties were pretty good, but they still weren't necessarily as good as the French or even the Scots in the early 1990s. And we were rubbish at tennis. You know, we got to one, Greg got to a grand slam final. Tim Henman, okay, he was world number four, but we were all like, oh, but he's rubbish. He never wins anything. So, uh, and everyone used to have a go at everyone else. Oh, why are you being so negative about British sport? And now we've come to the other side of it. So I don't really get it. I think for me, I, I'm not, I, maybe I'm framing this debate wrong. For me, it's not, I'm not talking about the pressure and whether she should have pressure. I think absolutely she should have pressure as a grand slam. I'm just saying for me, what my realistic expectations for her are, I, I don't think we can have an informed decision. I think that's just so... Oh, you're you're playing that there's no point in speculating because we can't possibly know. Oh, just, I, I tell you what, George, I'll ring you up in about two and a half weeks' time and you just <laughs> no, no, you just but... you just tell me what Emma Raducanu did at the Australian Open. I think I think it just it, life in general and in and tennis particularly, because I think if you're a casual fan in tennis and you watch tennis four times a year, you know, it, it's all right being surprised by like Raducanu and whatever. But for people who watch tennis religiously most players who arrive up to a slam have come in with really good form or 
we know about them. We've seen them do things at other stages in the tour. It's, it's very rare we see people at slams who come out of the blue and really, and go on and win it. Karatsev, you might say, was one. And even he, actually, there was a big trend through challenges. But, you know, in terms of general tour results, there wasn't a trend. Raducanu really was a massive outlier there. And I still uh, I stand by that. I think she is a really odd outlier that I'm not, I'm still not sure exactly what I think about her. I think, about her. I think she's great, obviously, but I, I, it wouldn't surprise me as much that she never cracked the 10 top, top 10 in her career as if she went on to win 10 slams. I don't know. Mm. I, I still am very unsure where to place her. I'm not, just don't know how to, uh, what to think of her, even though I think she's more than capable of doing brilliantly. Um, yeah. Do we do we think? I'll ask you both the same question. <laughs> by the end of 2022, do you think she'll have had more Grand Slam quarterfinal appearances or coaches? <laughs> <laughs> well, are we just starting from this year? From now, right? So the maximum you can get is four. That's a very very good question. Uh, coaches. coaches. Yeah. Because I, I'm I wouldn't <laughs> like I wouldn't be surprised if she has three coaches this year. And that's not a slight, like I just think it's if you look at the previous um year, you look at the previous year. Uh but I would be surprised if she makes three Grand Slam quarterfinals. I would say she'll have one coach change this year and won't reach a quarterfinal. Wow. You say you say she doesn't make it past the fourth round at any of the Grand Slams. I, I... I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily back her right now. There's not. I. I don't think there's one person in tennis, in women's tennis, that I would back not to make a Grand Slam quarterfinal this year, based on <laughs> based on the list of people who made a Grand Slam quarterfinal last year. I have zero confidence in picking anyone inside the top five hundred to not make a Grand Slam quarterfinal this year. But I, I'm, I'm would... going to say. My... I've just figured out my figures there. I think one quarterfinal, three coaches. Yeah, I'm with you on three coaches. Because only two, like two coaching changes actually isn't that much. Because she could like, well, I suppose it is and it isn't. Like based on the Radicanu gradient of coaches, um, all she would have to do is change one because the first two slams of the year don't get that great. And so she changes for Wimbledon or maybe just after Wimbledon has a few months, the hard court swing doesn't like it changes again for the off season. Not inconceivable. Just, just on your point there, James, at the end of last year, now we, we may debate what we're going to say in terms of the form she was in, but Kenin probably started last year. What world number four was she? Something like that. Yeah. Potentially she's three, <laughs> but she's yeah, number three seed. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't reach a quarterfinal that year. You know, I'm just saying that it is really, it's not that great a surprise in women's tennis for someone who's top 10 the year before, reached two finals in the last year, then to make one fourth round the next mm. year. That's what I mean. It's hard to predict. It's absurd. So, um, let, let me do a quick run around before we get really stuck in just sitting here saying we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, let me do a quick run around what's going on uh, in Australia over the next couple of days. Uh, there are two tournaments, an ATP and a WTA in Adelaide. Uh, there's a WTA in Melbourne and an ATP in Melbourne as well. Um, the ATP probably in Melbourne is, is the best one there. Uh, Andy Murray is up against Facundo Bagnis. 
Uh, he could play Gregor Dimitrov in the second round if he gets through, which could be quite fun. Um, Rafa Nadal is playing there. In absolutely farcical scenes, and pointed out by Stu Fraser, the Times tennis correspondent on Twitter, um, Rafa Nadal, Andy Murray, Nick Kyrgios, and a few other choices, Grigor Dimitrov, um, are all playing in this tournament, and uh, you can't watch it on TV in the UK because no one has picked up the rights. Um, if you want to watch all of the tennis in Australia over the next four weeks, you need to have an Amazon Prime subscription, a Eurosport subscription, and a Tennis.TV subscription, because that's the only way you can actually watch it all. Um, it, it's an absolute mess. I don't have an answer. Uh, someone needs to think about whether it's a great idea to have the rights chopped up like this. In Let's face it, the UK is one of tennis's richest markets. Um, it's probably where, you know, it's where one of the Grand Slams is, is held, probably the most financially successful one. So they should start thinking about exactly what they're doing with TV rights. Calvin. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like it one bit. I think tennis re- really is letting itself down doing it, but I guess it's indicative of all sports, isn't it? Like football, you'd need three different football subscriptions yeah, this week to watch it. Cricket, you'd need two. You need Sky, Sky and BT, yeah. Watch. And I, I, I think it's something in sport that needs to get a handle on it straight away because there's there's nothing really stopping it going more than that. You well, could, I think like, say... Oh, sorry, Jen. Well, I think it's partly because they realise that the bidding war is more valuable than the rights. So the reason that football made quite so much money was because BT got involved and you had a bidding war between BT and Sky, which then Amazon are now a piece of. And and they themselves are pairing back that kind of bidding war. But I think a lot of sports, all right, no sport makes the kind of money that football does out of TV rights. But I think a lot of sports have realised that the more... Uh, different broadcasters they have involved, the greater their reach in terms of marketing. You know, if you have a broadcaster, they're going to market the sport for you. You know, you know, they run adverts for your sport. Great, brilliant. And they pay you for it, um, however piffling that sum might be. So I think they've realized that that might be the short-term game. I think the long-term game, the idea that you could become a committed fan of a sport, pay £20 a month and have all the tennis in one place, I mean, you just watch so much more of it. I mean, Calvin, you know, you're a person who makes his living from tennis and you regularly say on our WhatsApp group, God, it's really hard to find the tennis on Prime. And it is. It's when, When it's not, even when it's a Grand Slam, even when it's the US Open, it's not easily findable on yeah. Amazon, which is like the third biggest website in the world. It's wild. Yeah, you've got to go through. I think I think my last count was you've got to go through five menus um, <laughs> to get the tennis on. And I think it's more than that, though. It seems like I text my mate this morning, who who's a former tennis player and works in sport, and I asked him if he was watching the tennis, and he said he didn't even know it was on because. And and I know my mate when he gets up in the morning, he he gets up and he puts Sky Sports One on, and then he just goes through the channels until he finds a sport he's going to watch. If the tennis was on he'd watch it, but you're not just mm. going to, unless you're specifically wanting to watch tennis, you're not going to be going through the Amazon prime um, menus. Are you? So we, we lose that. And that's tennis is not a big enough sport to be able to miss out on that. Mm. George, you want uh, to say something and then you got distracted trying to get a coffee out of your missus. I'd have thought. No, someone was just killing it. I was being disturbed by a family member who didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. I just started walking in. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, Calvin's actually stumbled on kind of, I think, almost the broader problem there is that with other sports, there's a clear 
slight even promotion strategy at times. I mean, like I'm thinking of boxing here, for example, that, mm. you know, that's on the zone now that's taken on a large portion of boxing in terms of a streaming service, not dissimilar to tennis. Um, and then you've got your pay-per-view that, but how do people know those things are happening? Like everyone I know who's vaguely into sport knows those big fights happen or when they're coming up. I, I'm not sure that happens with tennis still. Like I, I, I think so many things just slip completely under the radar. Big matches, what's coming up. Are there big matches left to sell at the moment? Are the names big enough to penetrate? This probably comes back to are enough of these players getting to finals and semifinals and facing each other? Are these rivalries there now? I think it's also like, yeah it's the difficulty of tennis and you can't get away from it unless you can of knockout tournaments that like you can't really bill a match more than two days in advance at best. Like you can't tell someone three weeks in advance when to watch Federer versus Nadal. I always always say this about tennis. I I see at some weird point in the future in some long-term parallel universe that tennis just becomes a league. Like, and you have teams every year and you pick a squad of four players at the start of it and then you just have them play each other and it becomes... Yeah, I'm right up for it. I'm right up for it. Sorry, Calvin. I, I, Calvin, I, Calvin, Calvin was going to interrupt and he wasn't afforded the opportunity. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that if you look at the tournament that makes the most money, it's Wimbledon. It's on terrestrial TV mm. in Britain. And I think if it wasn't on terrestrial TV in Britain, would it make as much money over the course of for five years because people want to go, they know it's on, they see it on BBC... When they come home from work, it's on it's on BBC One and BBC Two usually at around about that time. So then they want to go. If five years, if, if for five years it was on Amazon Prime, the, the attendances would go down. Yeah. And the money made would go down. But I'm surprised that none of the terrestrial or free channels have picked up a bit more tennis because the last they had on, Channel 4 had uh, the Radicanu final and it was hugely successful. Mm. Um, I'm surprised that, that some of those channels haven't gone and picked it up because tennis tends to not happen at, at peak times either you don't have mm. much tennis that's on it apart from the u.s swing that's on at kind of 7 30 at night do you mm. uh, so from my sort of little bits of knowledge and speaking to people who work in commissioning and, and i know a couple of different channels and I, I quite regularly say to them oh why haven't you got the boxing on or you know you could get British heavyweight fight this weekend and it wouldn't cost you much. And the simple truth is that the numbers don't work. Sport's quite expensive to put on TV. So when you want to buy the rights to something, you have to pay quite a lot of money. And compared to the ratings that it does, it you know it, it makes much more sense to buy the period drama for half the price and get double the ratings that you're virtually guaranteed. Sport is just too much of a risk for these big network companies whose margins are razor thin, especially now, to, to go and take a punt on sport. that The only reason Channel 4 would go for, you know, for example, that Raducanu final was because they got an unbelievable deal because essentially Amazon knew exactly what they were doing and they got a free advert for four hours with Amazon Prime plastered all over Channel 4. You couldn't pay for that marketing. But on a, on a regular basis compared to the one-off, it's very hard for, for the schedulers to make, to make the numbers add up. And just <clears throat> on the Channel 4 one as well, I mean... Others within the TV industry would say, would say Channel 4 were also very naughty there in terms of what they actually did. Like That's a bit of a no-no for free-to-air to advertise someone like Amazon. Mm. Um, On such a kind of shameless basis. Yeah, and I'm aware of people who did turn it down for, on that perspective of 
we, we actually can't do it because it's against TV standards. Who then were very pleased with it with Channel Four just doing it. So that you know that that is a kind of extreme example. But that said, if Radicanu were to carry on on her trajectory and reach her 13 million followers, that may oh, decide. Just, you uh, have to. If uh, this is going to be you for the next decade, serious point. Serious point, though. It is a serious point. But you know, it, to invest in tennis, it would require someone like that to start a bidding war for this to happen. So if you know if Radicano goes and wins the Australian Open now, I promise you the next rights bid for tennis in the UK would be a lot more interesting than the last one because it people have just assumed it's a dwindling market. No one cares. She she has the potential to completely change the game in this country on a broadcasting perspective. I'd love I'd love it I'd love a network to go after it. I cannot see it happening, but as always, we shall see. Um, we should move on. Uh, we, we've got a little sidetracked. I hadn't written TV rights down anywhere, and we've ended <laughs> up in a big discussion about it. But hopefully, you've enjoyed it at home, which is really the point. Um, we're going to do something different now. Not something we like doing. It's called minute tennis, or at least it currently is called minute tennis, um, which is quite quite simply going to be where we ask Calvin Beton to break down a complicated concept in just one minute for you. Um, we will ask you on Twitter if there's things you want us to talk about, or specifically want Calvin to explain, uh, then please do put them in our direction. But we're going to start with uh, string tension, which uh, please oh, no, no. don't turn off. <laughs> oh, we're not starting with string tension. I thought we were going to with strings. Oh, I see. I see. Strings. And it's strings. Calvin Beton, in one minute, strings okay so when players have strings there's basically some the main the most important thing is the string tension uh which would be the tighter you have your strings strung at the, the less power you'll get and more feel the the looser you have them you'll get more power and less feel and so usually most players will come in between the biggest difference in strings came about 15 years ago because most players were used to play with natural gut or a synthetic gut uh, which would lose its tension the longer the rackets were strung, and also the strings would move as the balls hit and not come back into place, which would mean you lost control of it. About 15 years ago, a company called Luxilon developed a polyester string that held its tension, so the racket doesn't lose tension. It also lasts longer, and the strings fall back into place straight away. But what that also meant was that players had to change their tension um, the players had to change their tension depending on how they wanted to play. I mean, that did turn into a minute on string tension and uh, synthetic yeah. gut. Um, I have a question on what natural gut and synthetic gut means. I mean, is it made from the stomach of a sheep? It's made from cat gut. No. Um, natural gut is made from cat's gut, yes. That's um, horrendous. It's extremely <laughs> expensive. Um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> this is this is a, a, a this doesn't happen anymore, right? No, it, most of the players play with natural gut. You're at, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry, but uh, so you're telling me tennis rackets aren't vegan? <laughs> no, no, they're not vegan. No. What strings you get, James? Right, of course. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm absolutely blown away. But I mean, people at home are probably listening, saying, "Oh, this tennis, this James guy doesn't know a thing about tennis," but. I, I, I presume cats that die of natural causes, presumably. I don't know what the um the process. I don't know if it's halal or what. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm not is... sure halal killing of cats. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, that's, that's yeah, something. Most players, it's it's the softest 
um, string you can get. So most players, most good players will use it uh, because it gives you the most feel. I've actually never played with it because um, I've never been able to afford it. Um, it's <laughs> exceptionally expensive. It's about it's about 40 quid per set um, to buy. Um, so what players would do normally now is they'd have, and it doesn't last long either. It breaks mm. very easily. So what players would normally do is they'd have a polyester string in, usually in the mains, which is the strings that usually break. So for people who don't know, the mains are the the, the strings that go vertical up and down, and then the cross are the ones that go horizontal. Um, but um, lateral, sorry, not horizontal, what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but, so what they'd have is they'd have the, the main strings are the strings that usually break. So they'd have a polyester string in the mains, and then a natural gut in the crosses to add more feel to their racket. And that's what, what is called a hybrid. And most mm. players have a hybrid. You don't get many. Some players do have one string throughout. You wouldn't get anybody who has um, gut throughout their racket, but you would get quite a few who have um, a polyester in the whole racket, um, which you'd usually string down about 10% lower than what you would um, a gut racket. There's also then synthetic gut, which is pretty much what it sounds. It's an artificial gut that plays a bit like a natural gut, but apparently not um, not exactly like it. I think a, a question a lot of amateurs would love to know, Calvin. Um, what's the range in terms of weights that the pros use of string tension? Um, and could, could you plot on a map roughly some of the players and where they are. So I know Manorino is your favourite example of someone very loose, isn't it? Yeah, Manorino's probably got the loosest strings. I think he has them at about 29 um, kilos, which is which is really, really low. Or 29 pounds. I don't know which one it is. Um, but um, And it can go from anything, really. Nadal has his surprisingly loose. I can't remember what it's at, but Nadal has them really loose. This is what's, what's brought in with... Basically, with polyester string, the feeling is that you have to get the string as to get the most out of it, to get the most feel out of it. You have to get the string as loose as you can possibly play with mm. um, to get the most out of polyester. What's the um, trade? What's the trade-off? So, if you've got like really loose strings, you say you get loads of power. What What do you get less of with your string? If you've you got get really less low- feel and you get less control, it would basically mean like playing with a, a banjo. <laughs> the ball would be flying. So if you watch Manorino, that's why Manorino is kind of so, so slow. He's barely got any swing on his racket. He just kind of bunts the ball around mm. and sort of guides it with his racket. There's the surprise is that Nadal has his so loose. Um, but if you imagine basically what's happening with a polyester, imagine that you want it to be like a, a um, almost like a trampoline on the ball, that the ball's going to suck into the racket uh, the bracket's going to go into them. The, the string bed goes backwards. And it, it what, what the benefit of polyester is, if it's strung loose, is that it holds the ball on the racket for longer. Right. Whereas if it's strung tight, it's it's not going to hold the ball on the racket for as long, so that therefore you get less feel on the ball. Hmm. For, for what it's worth, listeners, my last sort of string was 22 kg. Apparently, I can see I text my stringer. So that means right. you've got really, really loose strings. No, that means so that would be forty-four pounds. It's about forty-four pounds, about double, I think. Um, so, 2. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So George would be about forty-six pounds, which is kind of about when it's a bit looser than where most people are um, with a polyester. If you have a polyester, back mm. in the old days where it was just uh, gut and it was just synthetic gut and, and gut, 
you tended to around be about somewhere between 58 and 62 pounds. Um, but it's come really low since then. Yeah, the, 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 the biggest, the last great technological development in tennis was about 15 years ago when the, when, when Luxilon developed polyester string. Um, and before that, the equivalent of it was if you, if you broke a lot of strings before polyester came in, you used to have a string, uh, which was Kevlar, which is this thing, what they make bulletproof vests out of. Mm. So if, if you were, if you were repeatedly breaking strings, you would play with Kevlar as your string, string woven from Kevlar. And it was terrible to play with, but you could never break it. This this might be a really dense question, Calvin, but how much do players change their string tension throughout their professional career? As in, is it like, do they learn during juniors, hit a point of like, this is me forever? Or and I, I, some, don't, some change it based on the conditions as well. Most, most players would have like a preferred tension, the tension that they play. If, if all things being equal, they'll have, this is the string tension. They'll also in their racket bag, they'll have, let's say they have eight rackets in their bag. They'll have probably four rackets that are of their preferred tension. Then they'll have a couple that are strung looser and a couple that are strung tighter for depending what may happen in the match if they feel like they've lost a little control. Then on top of that, they'll they'll usually turn up at a tournament, have a hit on the courts, see how they feel, and they may alter their tension by two or three pounds, depending on that. If it's a fast surface, they'll go a bit more control. If it's a slower court, they'll they'll go for a bit looser. They'll go for a bit more power on it and that kind of thing. But most players will have a tension that they prefer in general, unless there's an anomaly in the surface. Yes, it's predictions o'clock, which uh, thanks to the Fuhrer, George Belshaw, it almost always is here. It's uh, always predictions o'clock on the Love Tennis podcast. Uh, we've already put this off for a couple of weeks and I've been trying not to do it. So um, we're going to do, we're going to predict the year end rankings for six different British players. Um, and by the end of the year, it'll act as a tiebreaker, uh, which we're going to need because Calvin and George are currently tied. And so we have to break the tie and I'm going to make them wait 12 months to do it. Um, so, George, uh, you should start with your year-end ranking for current British number one, Cam Norrie. 23, I've gone for. I've gone for 18. I've got a bit more faith in him. Calvin? 25. Oh, right in the bloody middle. Yeah, yeah that's, that's very clever. That's very clever. Go round who goes first, I think. Yes, that's, that's don't worry, George. That's what I'm doing. I knew you'd get annoyed about that. Uh, right, we'll go to Andy Murray next because he's the next one on my list. I'll go first. Uh, and I've written 85. Yeah, not generous. Who's next? Calvin. 62. Oh, I was in an optimistic mood last week. I'm really regretting this. I, I've gone 41 for Murray. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I wrote 85 and I was like, that's definitely in the lower half of my estimations. But, you know, he could spend six months off quite easily. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's 40 to 100, I reckon. He might not play a ranking yeah. tournament between like end of March and beginning of June or, or longer, quite frankly. Yeah. He could be inside uh, 85 if he has, like, if he wins a couple of matches at the Aussie. Yes, I mean, you can see what I think about that. <laughs> uh, right, Calvin, you've got to go first on Dan Evans. Um, 
22. Oh, I mean, that is joint career high, I believe. George? And I wrote this last week and I was in a bit of a negative mood about Dan given his form, but now he's just smashed. One match, through. honestly. The biggest, <laughs> recent, the biggest recency do. bias in the tennis yeah. media. I don't, I, I'll stick with what I had. I went 51. I think it's going to be a drop down this year. Uh, I've gone 35, which I'm pretty pleased with. It's right in the middle. Um, right, well, back to George going first on Radicanu. Yeah, I'm regretting this one already as well, given I've said she's not going to get to the quarterfinals. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess you could also say I'm just covering all bases. I had her at 13 last week. Um, okay. I think she's got quite a free hit first half of the year uh, to pick up a load of points, given... Yeah, but then she's got to defend an absolute boatload in the second half. She does, yeah, but... I. I still think she'll do fairly well year round, even if not necessarily at the slams, but we'll see. Uh, I have gone 22 for Radicanu, which I think is almost exactly where she's ranked at the moment. So it feels pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty lame on my behalf. Uh, Calvin, Emma Radicanu, end of year ranking. 35. Wow. Uh, I'll go first on Heather Watson. I, I mean, I, I, absolute pin sticker with this because it, it could be <laughs> anywhere between anywhere between about forty and one hundred and twenty. Uh, I've gone forty-five, which is probably pretty optimistic. But George, you can go second. I, I'm slightly less optimistic. Ninety-seven. I've got. Wow, Calvin. One hundred and thirty-six. Oh. oh. <laughs> Outside can't of James' range, Calvin. That's, can't wait that's... until she beats Alia Tamlanovic in straight sets tomorrow morning and then goes on the biggest run of her life. I was going to say, we will know where she'll finish roughly based on the first two months of the season because she either wins the title in like Hobart or somewhere. That'll be her only title of the year. If she doesn't win that, she's in big trouble. Um, <laughs> that's been the story. So. And now we'll probably see. the hardest one of them all, I think. Yeah. Calvin, you can go first on Kyle Edmund. Although Calvin, you've probably heard or, or maybe even seen Calvin hit a tennis ball much more recently than any of us. No, I haven't. Um, that's a tough one because I don't know when he's going to be back. Neither do any of us. Yeah, the plan was for him to be back already. The plan was for him to be back a month ago yeah. for the Battle of the Brits, um, and he might have been hitting balls. I don't know, but. The last I'd heard, he wasn't. So, I, I don't know, like 90? George? So that's, that's based on him maybe not playing any matches. Hilariously, I've written down 89 last week. I'll take a wow. screenshot for you guys to prove I've literally No, it's all right. We believe you. We believe you. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've gone 75. Um, I, I, I don't even know why. I just... I always... It's somewhere be between... Okay. Huh? He might be unranked. Who yeah. knows? He might not be unranked. I mean, genuinely, but could be anything. I mean, 75 is sort of somewhere between where he is now and where I think he should be, basically. It's about halfway between the two. So that's that's my only justification. Um, well, we'll see how they, they pan out. I don't think they get pan out very well. Um, certainly not on my half. The other prediction we have to do is the end of year number one. George, I know you've already written these down. So yeah. uh, like in Countdown, um, I'm going to go to you. Um, Medvedev, number one. Men's. Oh really? Um, I think Djokovic only really got it this year because he won three slams and 
given the state of play at the minute, I'm not sure he's going to make it to Australia. Um, so that opportunity to get enough points to stay number one is going to be tough. Um, Medvedev, yeah, he's he's playing at a higher level on hard courts than anyone else um, outside of Djokovic. And even then, it's pretty close. So, yeah, he's my pick. Calvin, who's your year-end number one? I think Medvedev as well, yeah. Uh, I'm going to um, surprise none of you and say Novak Djokovic because obviously it's just insanity not to pick him. He's got uh, so much to defend. He's going to have to do all that again. I don't think he, I don't think he'll win three slams. But if he doesn't win three slams, he's going to drop. He's going to play three slams, Calvin. Well, I don't think he, he'd have to win all of them at this rate. Well, no, he will. He's playing the Australian Open, so <laughs> he's playing them all. Well, and, uh, you know, by next week, we should know. Hopefully. Yeah, it's something we've not touched on today, but um, maybe. Not leave it. <laughs> uh, George, you, do you want to give us your women's year-end number yeah, one? Uh, a pretty boring one for me as well. I'm going to stick with Barty. She's pretty consistent, tour level wide. I think I think I had her down to win the French and Wimbledon, so I think it's fairly clear I'm going for her to be number one. Calvin, you got a women's year-end number one? Osaka. Ah, uh, I also have Osaka. So, really? George, I reckon you feel pretty good about that. I do feel pretty good. I mean, I she pretty... is the best player, which is which is important. I've always said Osaka or Barty. Yeah, Osaka. Osaka's the best on the unnatural surfaces, but Barty's the <laughs> best on the natural surfaces. So yeah, but decide. Osaka has a long way to go. Like, I think she she can improve on the natural surfaces. <laughs> That is finally all we've got time for uh, here on the Love Tennis Podcast. It's been a pleasure, as always, having you listen. Please do leave us a rating or a review. It makes a massive difference to everything that we do, um, whether it's just self-esteem or whether it's actually um, trying to you know, make things work. Uh, please do follow us on Twitter as well, at Love Tennis Pod, uh, and we'll catch you next week. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.